another edition of the Broadcast Journal. This is Kofi Pia here at the Prancher Center in Newark, New Jersey. My guest is the television voice of the New Jersey Devils and the New York Red Bulls, Steve Cangelosi. How are you doing, Steve? Nice to be here, Kofi. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, so let's talk about the Devils so far this season. It hasn't gone the way most people would like, but how would you assess the season for them so far? Well, in terms of wins and losses, it has to be classified as a disappointment. I think uh, even the coaching staff was hoping to see the team take the next step in terms of tangible success, but you can isolate certain pockets of the season really that have contributed to where they are right now, which is last overall in the Eastern Conference standings. I think that you go back to that stretch of late November to mid-December, right after the team had a terrific start to the season. They were 9-3-3 and after completing a five-game winning streak in Dallas. They were feeling good about themselves, and then it went off the rails. There are a couple of reasons for that. Injuries have factored into this a little bit. Uh, you could look at five key players in the lineup who've been absent for nine or more games. Uh, Taylor Hall at the top of that list, Mike Camilleri, uh, Andy Green, John Moore, Jacob Josephson. That factors into it. So does the team's lack of scoring punch, and so does what I have to believe is the most disappointing half season of Corey Schneider's career so far. And if that's the worst of it, they're going to be fine moving forward. Okay, let's talk about the team right across the river, so to speak, the Red Bulls. <laughs> Obviously, they've had a lot of regular season success, but they have, hasn't translated into postseason. What are you expecting for the Red Bulls this season? Well, they go into the year as, believe it or not, the favorites to win MLS Cup, as strange as that sounds, as that has never happened in the team's 21-year history. But it always seems like it's that way recently. They're very well coached. Uh, they have a lot of balance, but there are a lot of questions there as well. They traded their captain, maybe their most popular player, Dax McCarty, to Chicago in the offseason for allocation money. Uh, there's high hopes. They're off to a 2-1-1 and start as we sit here doing this interview. And that's a good thing because typically this is a team that struggles early in the year. And then as the season goes on, we really see the find their form. So the fact that they're out of the gate somewhat quickly here is very encouraging. But it's at that point, two decades, no championships, where anything less than MLS Cup really isn't where you want to hit the bar. Okay, so let's, let's talk about you and your career. Uh, when did you... When did you think that, uh, I guess maybe, when did you want to be a sports broadcaster? Probably uh, from childhood uh, is the honest answer to that. And then I think early in high school, uh, I started to educate myself a little bit about what it would take to be a sports broadcaster. When you're an eight- and nine-year-old kid and all you're doing is mimicking and imitating your favorite announcers on television, you really don't think about the work that goes into it and the process to get to where you want to go. So really in my teens, I started to look at, wow, what's a school that I might have to go to to really enhance my chances of starting a career? I wound up going to New York University which was a really smart choice, even though the collegiate sports programs were not powerhouse, the school itself had the ideals and represented the things that I felt was important and people I trusted felt was important. Uh, a strong broadcast program, uh, a very strong journalism program, uh, and, and those things I still carry with me to this day, even though I've been out of school since 1985. 
So who were some of your announcers that you um, grew up wanting to be like? I always thought of it in terms of pairs and not singular announcers. And I always, uh, there are people I obviously like, but I've been asked that question many times. And the way I've always answered it is Marv Albert and John Andres calling a basketball game together. It worked. This is well before your time, but uh, Tony Kubek and Bob Costas would call baseball together, and it worked. Al DeRogatis and Kurt Gowdy were terrific football announcers. Together, it just sounded right. And when you think about it, what we do, that's the most important thing, playing off your partner and making it be the very best combination that it possibly can be. Because unless you're Vin Scully, you're not doing this by yourself. You're doing it as part of a team. And that's always resonated with me, how the pair sounds together and not the singular guy. So let's talk about your pairs in both your, the sports that you do. Uh, first, you worked with Chico with the Devils games. How would you describe your relationship with Chico and then uh, with Ken Danico? Well, it, it, they come at the game from a completely different place. Uh, Chico, I always thought... Uh, looked at it through the eyes of a goaltender. And what's important to clarify here is that he's never totally been honed in on the goalie, but because he sees the game like a goaltender, he was very good at knowing shooters' tendencies, where the wing wants to put the puck on a particular play, because those are the things he thought about all the time as a goaltender. Dano comes at it from a completely different place, uh, emotionally and also tactically. Dano was a defensive defenseman, a tough guy on the ice, that person that you would rely on. He carries that emotion to the booth, I think, sometimes as well. It's evident as soon as the red light goes on and the camera is on and we come on at seven o'clock you see it in his face you see it in his body language he's swinging his arms half the time and that emotion i think spills out onto the broadcast where you really see his personality each and every night and what about your broadcast partner for the rebels shep messing uh totally different from the other two harvard educated and uh i think a rules freak which is one of the things that makes him a tremendous analyst. Uh, he does not get tied up in numbers. He does not get tied up in storylines. He actually keeps himself at arm's length from the players he covers because he doesn't want to be too close to them at any given time. That's been his approach for as long as I've, I've worked with him. But what he has always done is had a mastery of the rule book, and he feels he is there for one reason to tell the truth about what's going on on the field. He's cut from a little bit of a different cloth than my hockey partners. Okay, so I guess you first got your start at um, W, any W, uh, 1986. Uh, was that a job that you got right out of high school, I mean, college, or was it like... No, no, my first job out of college was the same one I had in college. I was working at Sports Phone, which is something... Uh, youngsters nowadays are not very familiar with. Basically, long before the Internet and long before you can get any score you wanted on your phone or even long before sports radio, people who wanted scores and sports news would literally dial the telephone, 9761313 in New York, and I would be one of the rapid-fire announcers giving the latest scores. That was my first job uh, that I was paid for as an announcer, and trying to get that uh, all-elusive first on-air job, I wound up having it 
a couple of years after I graduated as well. WNEW uh, was 1130 on the dial. Uh, it's uh, a retired call letter station now. In its day, it was one of the most famous stations in New York City. But in a sports sense, it was the flagship station of the football giants. It was the flagship station of Penn State football when I was there. And prior to that, uh, New York Rangers hockey uh, as well. Uh, I carved a niche at WNEW. They were forming a sports show back in 1987. I offered to report on hockey games in the New York, New Jersey area uh, for uh, a very modest fee, and I would do a report for them three times a week that they would air within the show. Basically, they would be paying me about $20 for each report, and I'd send sound back to the radio station. But what it did do, it got me in the door with people. And when there came a need to be uh, someone to serve as an afternoon, early evening sportscaster within that program, uh, they looked at me, they liked my sound enough, and they hired me. And that was my first genuine on-air job. That was back in 1987. And then you moved on to 1010 Wins? How, yeah. How did that opportunity come about? WFAN was being born in the summer of 1987. Sports radio is something now, 24-hour sports radio, that we take for granted uh, because most people and youngsters have never lived without it in their lifetime. But WFAN uh, was the first in the country, and that was back in 1987. WINS. 1010 Winds was the powerhouse all-news station in New York. They realized that there was a new kid on the block coming. Sports fans would likely migrate there, and they wanted to do all that they could to beef up their sports department. They created a position uh, that never existed before, and I was the first afternoon-evening sportscaster on 1010 Winds Radio, where I became sports uh, director a couple of years into that. So how was that like, that whole time uh, there. fantastic because this is what i think not enough people get today many people who want to work in sports broadcasting go to college they work hard they study the right things but they never have that experience of being in a real city newsroom covering day-to-day -day news and in my case i did sports but i was in that situation every day in a humming, working newsroom, watching professionals do their job to the best of their ability and very often under high pressure. Whether there was a shooting in the Bronx, whether it was election night, whether there was a major developing story with weather or politics, I was in that mix where I watched those pros each and every day handle themselves. And while it doesn't directly relate to sports, I think it relates to everything we possibly do as announcers moving forward. And then you moved on to um, what's it called? New York um, News One. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was the first sports announcer at New York One News. Uh, they launched in 1992, uh, and we did a one-hour show every night. It, it, was, it, it was such a special and unique time. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something I think everybody should do once in their life, work for a startup, where you're coming in with a clean slate. You're coming in with 24 hours of programming, and here you are. The news head just says, let's go. Starting today, we're going. And 
it was myself, it was a group of young, aggressive, relatively inexperienced reporters, but everybody who had their heart in the right place and everybody who was in the business, I think, for the right reasons. It was a terrific mix of people covering news in the biggest, if you want to say greatest, but certainly the most complex city in the United States of America. It was terrific. And for me personally, it meant covering all of the professional teams in New York. And there are more of them here than in any market in the United States. You've got two football teams in the NFL, two Major League Baseball teams, three in the NHL, two in the NBA. Not much of a college town, but we did a lot of college coverage with schools like St. John's and Fordham, and it was a wonderful thing for me just to continue to grow that base. What was the, I'm sure there was a lot of things that happened during your time um, New York One News. Is there any, like, event that you said, oh, wow, I really enjoyed covering that event? Uh, you know, it coincided with such a fantastic stretch of success for teams in this area. I was at New York One News from 1992 to 2000. Think about what happened during those years. The Rangers won a Stanley Cup in 1994. The Devils won a Stanley Cup in 1995. The Yankees would win World Series in 1996, 1998, 1999, and 2000. And in 2000, they would play the Mets in a Subway Series. The Devils were becoming the model franchise in the National Hockey League. They'd win their second cup in the year 2000. So the special thing, the memory I have, is covering so many successful teams at the height of their success. And that might be something in my life I never recapture uh, again. I also see here uh, that you also worked at uh, ESPN Radio. So how did that come about? Yeah, I went to, I was freelancing at ESPN Radio for a while as I was at New York One. Uh, I was thinking about becoming a full-time talk show host. So uh, I would literally commute uh, to Bristol, Connecticut every day to do the national radio show five days a week. And it was a terrific experience. I got to see what it was like in Bristol on a day-to-day -day basis, which is a fascinating thing and something that I think is foreign to a lot of people who've never worked there. I loved my time there. The only reason it lasted for only a short time is that Madison Square Garden finally offered me uh, a job that I was hoping to get uh, for a very long time, and they called me in the summer uh, of 2000. So talk about that. Huh? How did you get in contact with MSG Networks, and how did you end up getting the position? Well, they didn't say yes right away. I probably had contacted Mike McCarthy and Joe Cohen, the two gentlemen who ran the network, maybe six, seven times in the previous five-year stretch, looking for a shot. And it was always a polite no. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that was the best thing for me because it gave me more time to marinate and become a better professional. So by the time they did call me in 2000, I was more equipped for it than I would have been years earlier. Uh, Madison Square Garden was launching a uh, new endeavor with Fox Sports, uh, and I was host of what was called the Regional Sports Network in New York. It was a nightly news and highlight show, a lot of reporting, a lot of feature work, and it was terrific while it lasted. The show went under, 
after a year and a half, but Madison Square Garden liked me enough that they kept me on board and they made me one of the hosts of Sports Desk. And that really began my introduction to the Devils back then as well because uh, while I wasn't part of the broadcast team per se with New Jersey, the Devils fans would see me very often with inserts on the pregame show between periods post-game from the studio, so there was a familiarity where when I did become the host of Devil's Hockey for the first time in uh, the fall of 2006, uh, I wasn't just this face that was coming out of the blue. So let's talk about uh, SportsDex, um, MSG SportsDex. Um, it's no longer around, but back then it was kind of the New York version of SportsCenter, so mm-hmm. what were your memories of doing SportsDex? Uh, at the time, it was, I think, such an important show in New York, and It's hard to gauge whether a show like that can have success today. Uh, We are, at any given moment, seconds away from getting any news and any highlight clip that our hearts desire. Uh, Fifteen years ago, that was not the case. It was very often appointment viewing, and there's so very little of that today with the exception of the live sports event. But you knew what you were going to get every night, and we were the eyes and ears of the sports universe for a lot of fans who were only honed into their team. So if we came on, let's say, after a Yankee game on MSG, uh, Yankees' rights were on MSG Network for many years, uh, there was a lot of viewership to the game, but they were very often only tuned into that event. They wanted to know everything else that was going on. They wanted it in a finite amount of time, and... It's one of the proudest things I've done because we did a terrific job with that show, speaking to the New York audience, which uh, I think you know the smart fans out there valued us, and it was a it was a terrific experience. Terrific. Uh, touched on it a little bit, but uh, besides sports desk, what were your other roles within MSG those early years? Uh, a lot of reporting, a lot of fill in on pregame shows at one point or another. Uh, I have filled in as the Islanders host uh, on Fox Sports uh, New York. I filled in as the New York Knicks host. Uh, I did play-by-play of New York Liberty games, and it all led to being the Devils host when Matt Lachlan went to the radio side in 2006. So how did you get that position? Uh, MSG makes the final call on that. What happened was uh, Matt Lachlan was uh, in the host role uh, for many years, and it was the trio of Matt, Mike Emmerich, and Chico Resch who were together for a good stretch. Uh, As I understand it, Matt wanted to do play-by-play. The radio job was open. Matt left. And it wasn't a given that MSG was going to fill that position internally, But I think the fact that they did know my strengths and weaknesses was maybe an advantage over an outside candidate. So at the time, there was a lot of change in the air at MSG, and ultimately it is the people at Madison Square Garden running the network at the time, and they bounce ideas and candidates off the New Jersey Devils. Lula Morello, who was not only the general manager of the team at the time, but also the president and CEO, would generally sign off on any addition to the Devils broadcast. So there had to be some positive impression with Lou as well. And at the end, I was fortunate. I was the candidate. And, um, you know, one of the things about being the Devils host that was a big opportunity for me is that Mike Emmerich, who was uh, 
the Devils' regular play-by-play man, was always in demand. And he was balancing not only his work with the New Jersey Devils, but national television assignments as well, whether it was with Versus, NBC, the NHL on NBC, the Olympics. There was so much on his plate. He was a very talented, respected guy. So you knew that there would be fill-in work in the play-by-play side when Mike was unavailable to do the Devils. I think that first year when I was on the crew, I wound up doing only five or six games. By the end, Mike's last season, it was closer to 20. So it became something where my voice began to resonate with the fans of the team on a much more regular basis. So how helpful was that experience, being able to fill in for Mike? doing Devils games? It was helpful on a number of levels. Uh, It gave me the opportunity to get to know Chico. His nuances on the air. We know him as a guy. I knew him as a co-worker. But it's very different when you're in the moment on the air working with those people and learning how to play off him positively. So that experience was very, very helpful. The other thing that was a positive was working with our crew. Roland Dratch has been the producer of Devils Hockey for more than two decades. Tom Meberg is our longtime director. Larry Gaines has been one of the best tape men in the truck uh, for many years. So there's an experience and comfort level that can only be gained by doing live events with them. And by the time I would become the full-time voice of the Devils, that obviously, I think, bolstered everything. And everybody had a comfort level when I took the job. Like There was very little unknown when amongst my coworkers about, you know, as Steve steps into this role, what are we getting into? Now, the other team that you work with, the Red Bulls, you first started doing, um, uh, I guess, game night stuff for them back when they were Metro Stars and stuff. Right, too. yeah. So how did that come about? You know something? The story's not that much different because J.P. Della Camera was uh, the every game voice of the Metro Stars and the Red Bulls at the time. And J.P. was also the forefront soccer broadcaster in the United States. I I, I don't think I'll mince words by saying that. So he was in demand as well, whether it would be international friendlies. ESPN was using him a lot. Uh, They had the national package exclusively. And J.P. was on assignment with other networks, and that opened a play-by-play door for me. Uh, And... While I've loved soccer from the time I'm a kid, I wasn't sure that that opportunity to call games in the United States would ever be a reality. The game just wasn't popular when I was a young guy. There was no professional league for most of my childhood after the NASL had folded. So, you know, sometimes I pinch myself and say, wow, this is something I never could have imagined 20 years ago but it's reality now and now the game and the league is thriving to the point where it's going to be here for the rest of our lives so yeah i was going to ask you um i was talking about how much has the game grown since like the mls started 1996 to now in terms of it being something on the american sports scope first game i called i was filling in for della camera in 2003 It was the Metro Stars against the Kansas City Wizards. That was their nickname at the time. They played at Arrowhead Stadium. That's the same stadium that the NFL's Kansas City Chiefs play in. It's an 80,000-seat stadium, and it was not uncommon for the Wizards to play before a crowd of roughly 6,000 in that enormous stadium. 
The first game I called was a 1-1 draw between the Metro Stars and the Wizards, and the place was barren. You could tell if you were watching on TV, it was barren. There was very little feel of something exciting going on. If you were watching on your couch back in New York, that was a microcosm of what I think the league was. Now, 22 years into this, the league is thriving. It has grown. It has doubled in size. It will soon go two and a half times the size it was back in 2002. We've opened up new doors, and specifically the Pacific Northwest uh, soccer markets that we weren't sure would be tapped. Not only have they been tapped, they've been tapped to extraordinary success levels in Seattle, in Portland, in Vancouver, in Northern California, where a new stadium went up last year and the game has exploded there. And remember the experience I told you about a second ago in Kansas City? A new stadium went up, the team rebranded, and now it is a hot ticket in which they sell out every game in a roughly 19,000-seat stadium. To answer your question, it's grown exponentially. So talk about that first season when you became the Devils play-by-play announcer full-time. Obviously, that was the year they went to the Stanley Cup final. So mm-hmm. how exciting was that from October all the way to June? Even though you didn't call, it's called most of the playoff games, how did you assess your first season? Yeah, the rights were only given to MSG for the first round of the playoffs. So their riveting seven-game series against Florida in the spring of 2012, and Adam Henrique's goal in double overtime. That's the last playoff game I've called in the NHL. So it's it's been a while. Believe me, I'm anxious to call uh, my next one for this team. Remember about where the team was, though, when that season began. The Devils had a long string of reaching the Stanley Cup playoffs snapped in the previous year. John McClain, who's now my MSG colleague, was the head coach of that team. They stuttered. Uh, out of the gate, and while they got very hot as Jacques Lemaire came in and took the reins temporarily as head coach, including an 18-1-2 and one and two stretch in the spring where you thought maybe they've got a shot uh, to get back to the postseason, uh, it wasn't meant to be. They fell short. So there was some air of mystery about whether or not they were going to be able to rebound uh, as well. Uh, What happened was they chose Pete DeBoer as their coach. They chose the right guy. He did a fantastic job. And the excitement of the last month, month and a half, I think was was palpable. Uh, You could see it. They were on course. They were were finding their groove. They were a heavy, physical team. And it came close to ending so quickly because the Panthers had them a bit on the ropes. They took a 3-2 series lead as uh, the series was shifting back here to Game 6. Travis Ajax scores uh, an overtime goal to force a Game 7. And then even in Game 7, the Devils do blow a two-goal lead. It goes to overtime, and you're wondering, is it all going to fall apart here again? Uh, are they still in this place where they're not going to be able to break through in the first round of the playoffs? And then the goal by Henrique in double overtime changes, and then the whole team takes on a different light from that point. They allow the Flyers to win game one, but they steamroll Philadelphia after that. They lose game one against the Rangers in the conference final. 
but all of us watching were seeing the Devils win every puck battle, and we looked at ourselves and said objectively, they're the better team here, and it turned out they were in Game 6. They met their match in the final against a better-equipped L.A. Kings team. It was a special run, though. It's the most special run I've had so far as the full-time voice of this team. And what about the Red Bulls? Is there anything that stands out in terms of your full-time tenure announcing Red Bull games? Just when they clinch the Supporters' Shield for the very first time, that's a trophy that might not mean much to the layman or the average sports fan here in the United States, but the Supporters' Shield is given to the regular season champion. It's the equivalent of what the President's Trophy would be to an NHL franchise. But the reason it carries more weight is that historically throughout the world, there are no playoffs, there are no postseasons. So there are a faction of fans who value the regular season champion just as much as the playoff champion here in the United States. You'll get differing views on that, but the manner in which they clinched their first supporter's shield was very, very special. They did it before a sold-out crowd at home at Red Bull Arena. Shep and I called the game. They blew out Chicago 5-2, and what I'll remember is roughly the last 20 minutes of that game from the 70th minute on being this avenue of celebration to just let out all of the frustration that was built up over two decades. And it was a big, big moment for the franchise and probably the most memorable moment so far for me with that club. Now, I work at Yankee Stadium, and obviously there's a team called the New York City Football Club. Uh, what do you think of the rivalry between NYCFC and the Rebels? It, it was immediate, and it was strong. And... It became real sooner than I thought it would, it would become real. Uh, I know for the Red Bulls fans, there is no greater joy than beating that team. And when they beat them at Yankee Stadium early last season by a score of 7 nothing, there was this sense of they're the new kids on the block. They've outspent us threefold with the star players that they brought in, but this is our town, and don't forget that. They've met six times already. The Red Bulls have won five of the six. That's a great measure of pride for the organization. That might flip someday if NYCFC keeps bringing in quality players. Surely there's going to be a stretch where they have the upper hand. But the measure of pride in that locker room and within that team and the fan base after that game, you sensed it for the rest of the year. And New York is red is the phrase that the marketing people like to use. I don't know how you can argue with them right now. They've got the right to use that. It's a real rivalry, and it developed quicker in the first two years of it than I ever dreamed it could. Uh, talk about the differences between calling a hockey game and a soccer match two diff, uh, distinctly different uh, they're similar but they're di distinctly different as well pace is completely different uh, I can honestly tell you that in a soccer game I can see all 22 players on the field at once uh, that is impossible in the National Hockey League if you can see all 12 players on the ice at once you're not doing your job very well uh, this is where that relationship with your analyst comes into play. He's going to see things away from the puck that I will never see. And it's his job to point them out to, my, to me, to the audience, as quickly as possible. If there's a heavy hit away from the play, 
if someone tripped somebody away from the play, if a player slammed into the boards inadvertently away from the puck, chances are I won't see that, but your analyst will. And you have to play off him very well in that situation. A soccer game develops uh, with very few exceptions, and there are exceptions to that, but there's a process of getting from the defensive third to the center of the field to the attacking third. And that process can be looked at, I think, with a wide view of the field. And that's important because it's the only way you're going to understand how plays get made in soccer, by seeing a team's full shape and by seeing how a team breaks that shape. The pace is completely different. And as the most obvious example of the difference in the craft, I can go 20 seconds without saying a word during a soccer game. And that doesn't mean I'm not doing my job. It might mean I'm doing my job very well. As a team is feeling out the play in the midfield, if they're kicking the ball around and just trying to sustain possession, there's nothing wrong with just laying out and letting the audience watch that. That will never happen in a National Hockey League game. Uh, in terms of MLS, what are your favorite um, venues to call a soccer match? Red Bull Arena is the best, and I'm not saying that because I have some built-in bias. It is the best. It is the standard by which all others are judged. I think Kansas City is a close second. I've loved calling games in Portland because of the uniqueness of the stadium, and it's a terrific market as well. Every game is sold out. It's a terrific venue where the fans truly care about the team. The stadium is situated right in downtown Portland, so if you're staying at a major hotel downtown, you can actually walk to the game. That's not really the case at Red Bull Arena. It's not the case for a lot of others, but uh, Red Bull Arena is number one. The actual venue, the field, and how they really treat and cultivate the soccer experience, to me, that's number one in the league. And what about the NHL? NHL, I think that I've always had this feeling walking into Bell Center in Montreal that something special is about to be witnessed. And some of that has to do with the fact that it's the city where 24 Stanley Cup champions have been crowned. It's the city with a team that has more history than any other, and they treat that history very specially, uh, not only with jerseys that hang from the rafters, with uh, paying homage to the great players all throughout the history of the franchise. Uh, and the fans themselves in Montreal are hockey savvy, I think, down to the very last one sitting in the last row at Bell Center. It's a big venue as well, and the sight lines are excellent with the gondola that overhangs the ice. So there's nothing about it that is, you know, secondary in nature to anything else. Right after Bell Center, Prudential Center, I think, is right there just in terms of what this venue has been for 10 years. It's state-of-the-art. There's not a bad seat in the house, and our broadcast location here at Prudential Center is close to perfect. We're halfway up the bowl at Center Ice, a bird's-eye view of everything that happens here in a Devil's Home game. I guess my last question will be, I always ask my guests, how would you like to be remembered when it's all said and done? Uh, just as somebody who tried to serve the fan, that's all. Somebody who gave 
uh, an honest day's work who tried to speak to fans intelligently and who always tried to serve their best interests from the moment they drop the puck or first kick until the moment the final whistle blows. Okay. Well, that was my guest, Steve Cangelosi, and thanks for listening to another edition of the Broadcast Journal. Thanks, Kofi. Good? Yep. All right.